The Gist is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Masters of War, History's Greatest Strategic Thinkers. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash gist. It's Wednesday, May 27th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The governing body of world soccer, FIFA, has, according to news reports, apparently been run by the governor of Illinois. Am I getting that right? Wait, no, I'm not getting that right. Officials of FIFA, which is short for Financial Irregularities for All. Oh, no, wait, that's not right. Short for Fiscal Impropriety, Fake Integrity. Oh, no, no, no. Today it was Fragment of Accountability Finally Arrives because FIFA officials have been indicted. The United States Department of Justice hit 14 men with 47 counts of racketeering, bribery, money laundering, fraud, and falling victim to the offside trap. In soccer, the only ones who could use their hands are the goaltenders and every minor sports bureaucrat who could grab hold of the never-ending international pile of lucre sloshing about. The FIFA communications director, and it is not a good day to be the FIFA communications director. It's somewhere in between Duggar family brand manager and guy in charge of organizing Jeb Bush's rope line. Anyway, this FIFA guy, Walter Di Gregorio in German said, Die FIFA ist in diesem laufenden uh, Verfahren, in dieser Untersuchung, die Geschädigte. Die FIFA ist die Geschädigte. FIFA is the victim here in this pending investigation. And he said it again, FIFA is the victim. Now, I read that translation on the New York Times website. So maybe a better translation of FIFA is the Geschädigte. Looked it up. That actually translates to the damaged one or the injured one. Yeah, he was saying FIFA is the injured one. So even in this, the moment of the highest disgrace for world soccer, what's the instinct? To fake an injury, to writhe and moan and clutch your side and wait for someone to feel sorry for you. Yeah, sure, we'll do that. Also, Qatar is a temperate soccer oasis and Putin's Russia would never engage in bribery and your 79-year-old president, Sepp Blatter, will be reelected because he is a reputable steward of the game, nothing more. Am I engaged in a little shot in FIFA Freude? Yes, there is a little shot in FIFA Freude going on. Can you blame me on the show today? I issue another spiel about a U.S. senator who would like to be U.S. president, but probably won't be. But first, you know what's worse than not getting what you need? It's getting too much of everything you want. And that is the state the world is in today. The world, believe it or not, is lousy with everything. The other day in the Wall Street Journal, the print edition of the Wall Street Journal, was just the greatest headline that I've seen in the last month. It was on the front page. It got almost no notice. The headline was, World Awash in Too Much of Almost Everything. It wasn't a pun. wasn't a clever way to put something we knew. It was just stark. World Awash in Too Much of Almost Everything. Now, online, they changed the headline to, I guess, fill you in on more of what they mean. But listen to how repellent this rephrasing is. Glut of capital and labor challenge policymakers. Global oversupply extends beyond commodities, elevating deflation risk. Oh, my God. 
is that is that just poison or what? But I was I was interested in the idea of world awash and almost too much everything. And so this means something specific, but I think it also means something general, something almost philosophical. And I thought of a book that I once read called The Progress Paradox. It's written by Greg Easterbrook. And this book, I am not kidding when I call it the most formative nonfiction book I have ever read because it taught me how to look at the world in a different way. It's equal to a dozen other nonfiction books because it has a general theory, which is that we're making progress, but we either don't give it credit or the progress doesn't actually result in better feelings. And well, I could go on and on, but Greg Easterbrook is here. Hello, Greg. Hello, Mike. So first I want to talk about the idea of the progress paradox. And there are a couple ideas in there. Is it more that we really are making progress, but psychologically we become used to it or can't admit it? Or is it more that as we make progress, our solutions cause problems of their own? Certainly the latter is often true. And thank you for such kind words about the book. In it, I throw out a couple of things that you might call pop psychology, although I think if Sigmund Freud were alive today, he'd be hosting a daytime talk show and doing pop psych too. And one of them is a concept I call abundance denial, that the both practical experience with the economy and polling data of people shows that most Americans say they don't have enough. Most Americans deny that they're materially comfortable, even even though objectively, not, not everyone, of course, but almost everyone is better off than a generation ago and, and way better off than a few generations ago. And uh, and we seem to be conditioned to think that we're worse off and, and almost at some level to want to think that we're worth, worse off. And the other big pop psych theory I throw out on the book I call collapse anxiety, uh, which I think has been a factor in Western thought since long before the physical collapse of the World Trade Center's made it palpable. We all at some level think, okay, things are good now, this year is fine, but it's all going to collapse sometime soon. And I don't think so. Obviously, none of us can be certain it won't all collapse sometime soon, but I think both those things are are strong factors in public thought. So if I were to give you a problem, I don't know, maybe to some it's an intractable problem, like uh, global warming, does your reading of history say that we'll solve it but won't feel good about it, or we won't solve it, or we'll solve it and our solutions will give us more problems? Well, again, I would say probably the solutions will create new problems of their own. There's, a, there's always a, a chain of cause and effect that the solution to one problem results in a new unanticipated problem down the road. Because, because climate change is such a generation-long issue, that, that it's, cause, it's taken much longer to create than other issues have, and, it will, and the solution will take much longer than other issues do. I think it's something that the world will be dealing with at least for decades and maybe maybe longer than that. I'm relatively optimistic that it can be addressed. And in the Progress Paradox, I cite the examples of dramatic declines in smog and acid rain almost everywhere in the world, including in many parts of China, without economic dislocation because of either business models or technical inventions that turned out to solve those problems, to at least to address those problems much more cheaply than anybody else thought. I think if the United States would just price carbon emissions giving people a financial incentive to invent either technical or business solutions to them, we would rapidly find that climate change can be addressed more cheaply and more practically than we think. But we, we, we have yet to make that first step, obviously. So the world is getting richer. You know, China, for all its faults, has pulled something like a billion people out of poverty. In one, one way to look at it, it's, you know, the 
one of the greatest achievements in human history. War, it seems terrible. There's far less war than there was 10, 20, you know, certainly 60 years ago. Lots of great progress being made around the globe. But are there problems that are intractable? Are there problems so far that have proven not to have budged and things haven't gotten better for a century? Oh, sure. And, and before we go past it, let's not forget that Chinese accomplishment with poverty. Almost a billion people pulled out of poverty in China in the last generation, and a, and a much larger number if you look at the entire world. If you look at the entire world, the number of people who have departed from poverty in the last 50 years is more than the total number of people who were alive everywhere when Teddy Roosevelt was president. That may well be, as you say, Mike, the greatest single achievement in human history, but we sh it's no reason to feel complacent. I think the world has long-lasting problems with economic instability, which we just mentioned. There's nobody has been able to figure out a way to devise an economic system that doesn't exhibit instability. Mm -hmm. So we have to constantly worry that it's going to fail. I think that we have a long-term worry that the Luddites were right. They may have been 200 years ahead of their time, but I think automation is going to continually cause problems for society in a, maybe a generation or two down the road. Automation may be a major problem for all the world in the sense that it will, it will make not everybody, but it will make many, many, many millions of people not necessary on an economic basis. Very optimistic about the decline of war, though. Uh, you get a different impression on CNN, but for, for 30 straight years, uh, the intensity and pre prevalence of combat worldwide has gone down. Would you in general say that abundance is as much of a problem as scarcity or it's its own set of problems, but maybe in general better? How do you look at the concept of abundance? Well, there's still plenty of scarcity. Don't don't forget there are, there are somewhere around 600 million undernourished people in the world. It's a phenomenally large number. Now, it's also the lowest percentage of the population that's been malnourished in human history, according to the United Nations, but it's still a large group of people that we should be intensely worried about. In general, abundance is rising everywhere, not just some of the world, but most of the world is going to have America's overweight problems, America's high blood pressure problems. The whole world is switching to our diet because it tastes good. Mm -hmm. uh, that brings problems of its own. A life grounded in materialism brings problems of its own. People look at China and say, how can, you know, China has a billion people. How can they ever supply cars for a billion people? I think they are going to supply cars to a billion people. The question is, where are they going to park? The total amount of stuff we have in the world, to go back to your Wall Street Journal headline that, that you started with, is rising very fast. And if we believe that that stuff is going to make us happy or bring any sense of self-fulfillment, that's a terrible mistake. I, I have another theory, and this comes from George Will, who said this in 2007 on the ABC program this week. He said, the coming of material abundance in the second half of the 20th century shifted from being about the allocation of material well-being to the allocation of cultural acceptance. African-Americans, women, now it's gays that are ahead of the line. So more globally than that simple point, I think what George Will is saying, once you have your material needs satisfied, you turn to other problems. And sometimes these other problems, to him, it's cultural acceptance. You can make your own list of problems. Sometimes these other problems are just as daunting, intractable, and serious. Well, I make the point in progress paradox in, in this way by saying that the type of problems we have has shifted greatly in, with each passing generation, less disease, less starvation, less poverty, etc. Uh, we tend now to obsess about 
smaller and smaller matters. You know, should there be trigger warnings on college courses? <laughs> Imagine explaining to somebody 100 years ago that anyone would have cared about that subject. When the Nazis are marching through Europe, the idea of microaggressions maybe yeah, right. gets a little lost. <laughs> a little lost. But see, it's great that we obsess about smaller and smaller problems because that means that the trend lines on the big problems are positive. And on almost every big problem, the trend line is positive. I think it's going to stay positive. I think it's not out of the question that the world will eventually achieve a post-scarcity economy in, in which there's, there's no scarcity, as neoclassical economics would use the term. But then, you know, what will happen? Will people be happy in such a world? But maybe they shouldn't be. I mean, maybe it's good that once scarcity is eliminated, we turn to things like social justice and we turn to things like psychology and we turn to, you know, the emotion once we're, once our bellies are full. I would look forward to a world in which government and public policy obsesses over really tiny problems because big problems are all solved. <laughs> I have a, a chapter in Progress Paradox called Stress, It's Nature's Plan. And, and I lay out an evolutionary psychology theory that one reason we, we all seem to suffer so much from stress and anxiety and never feel comfortable about things no matter how the world is going is that we are descended from our ancestors who were stressed out. That, that our happy-go-lucky ancestors stopped to smell the roses and got eaten by something, and our, our neurotic, stressed ancestors who are always scanning the horizon for predators, they're the ones who survived and reproduced, so we're descended from the stress of the far past, and why do you think we're so good at feeling stress? Yeah. We're really good at So you lay out, you give us some facts, you make some good arguments. If you've read the book, you probably can put things in context uh, a little better than someone who hasn't, or probably someone who isn't compelled to read such a book. But is there any advice there? Any advice other than what Cher said in Moonstruck, snap out of it? I'll tell you, Mike, I have toyed with the idea of writing a book just so I could use this title, Selfish Reasons to Become a Better Person. Mm -hmm. Psychological research shows, positive psychology research shows especially, that we need to experience more gratitude toward the world. We need to experience more optimism. We need to be more forgiving of others, not because these are altruistic virtues, but because they will enhance our own experience of life that grateful, forgiving, and optimistic people are happier than other kinds of people. And if they do good to the world, too, that's a nice little bonus. But I think you should act in an altruistic manner for selfish reasons because it will make you feel happier. Well, certainly supplying us with an abundance of insight and sagacity is Greg Easterbrook. Thank you so much for your time, Greg. Thank you, Mike. Most of you are lifelong learners like me. That is why I highly recommend the great courses to all of you listening to the GIST podcast. I experienced their lecture series, Master of War, History's Greatest Strategic Thinkers, presented by award-winning professor Andrew Wilson. Andrew Wilson teaches at the Navy War College, and listening to these lectures, that's how I experienced them through CD, was like getting an education that one would get at the War College. He talked about Sun Tzu. He pronounces it right. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. He talked about, he starts off by talking about Pearl Harbor and he goes in three directions. And he talks about how Pearl Harbor was an amazing military strategic victory. 
totally caught the U.S. by surprise. So it's great, right? No, because he put strategy in the greater context and pretty much doomed Japan, made them a belligerent in the war. However, he takes a further step back and he talks about gambles and he talks about how Japan thought it had a losing hand. It is fascinating. He does a great job. The Great Courses is celebrating their 25th anniversary, has over 500 series on topics like history, science, photography, taught by top professors in their field. Literally, this guy who lectures our future military leaders at the Navy War College. Watch or listen with online downloads or streaming via the Great Courses apps on DVDs or on CDs. And for a limited time, the Great Courses has a special offer for the GIST listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling series, including Masters of War, up to 80% off the original price. It's a limited time only offer, so we recommend you order today. Go to greatcourses.com slash gist. That's greatcourses.com slash gist. And now the spiel, Bernie down the house. Burn, baby, burn. The Sanders has landed. Ladies and gentlemen, Vermont is Bernie. What I'm trying to say here is that Bernie Sanders, Democrat, no wait, independent from Vermont, is running for president. The issue of wealth and income inequality is the great moral issue of our time. It is the great economic issue of our time. It is the great political issue of our time. And we will address it. Some interesting Bernie Sanders facts. Did you realize that he is one of four members of the Senate who serve a constituency smaller than the one served by every member of the House of Representatives? That's right. The size of a congressional district is 710,000 people. Vermont only has 625,000 or so residents. Wyoming, by the way, has 584,000 or so residents. So Sanders, along with Wyoming's Mike Enzi and John Barrasso and Vermont's Pat Leahy, Those are the senators who are elected from districts less populous than a congressional district. By the way, here's a really weird fact. Enzi Barrasso from Wyoming are Italian, Italian Italian-Americans. Pat Leahy, also an Italian-American. His mother's family, Italian immigrants. Those two states, Wyoming and Vermont, give us three quarters of the Italians in the Senate. The other one is from Want to guess it? You got it wrong. West Virginia, Joe Manchin. The family name was once Mancini. I looked up the Italian-American population of Wyoming. It said, yeah, John Barrasso and Mike Enzi. State's actually about 3.5% Italian, according to the Italians. But then again, the Italians, when counting, see Italians everywhere. So what is weirder than the weird collection of states that account for all the Senate's Italians is the one high school... Not Exeter, not a fancy prep school, but a public high school in Brooklyn, James Madison High School, one high school that was the alma mater of three sitting senators at one time. And Bernie Sanders was one of the senators, grew up in Brooklyn. So was Norm Coleman, a former senator from Minnesota and current New York senator Chuck Schumer also went to James Madison High School. They went at different times. But this means that if Bernie Sanders is elected president, The president of the United States and the Senate minority leader will have attended this same public high school in Brooklyn. And right now, Bernie Sanders isn't even one of the most important James Madison graduates in Washington because 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme Court Justice, also an alum of James Madison High School. And she's not even the most famous judge to have graduated from James Madison. No, Judith Scheinlin, yes, Judge Judy, was also a Golden Knight, or as they stupidly call their women's teams, the Lady Knights. I don't know, maybe it's more like, hey, Lady Knights, future Supreme Court justices, drink free. Maybe that's how they're using it. Anyway, back to Bernie. Who wants to be the pride of James Madison? Ascending to the White House would certainly guarantee that. But Bernie has adopted a policy that would seem to seriously imperil his chances. As someone who has never run a negative political ad in my life, Sanders has been in a lot of political races. During the 1970s, he ran for U.S. Senate from Vermont and the Vermont governorship twice each. He never got more than 7% of the vote. Then he won election as mayor of Burlington. He got 4,330 votes. His challenger got 4,320 votes. Stayed in office as mayor, ran once more for governor, and then he finally broke through and gained federal office as Vermont's only representative won that election by 8,000 votes. But he never really had to wage an air war, never had to get down in the mud. Does this lack of familiarity with TV ads and negative TV ads, does that make him ill-suited to the reality of national politics, or does it make him pure? It's probably an academic issue. Sanders occupies a niche on the Democratic side, the purely liberal candidate who might have the effect of pulling Hillary Clinton to the left the way that Dennis Kucinich meant to do. Kucinich, by the way, it's not a great comparison. He was more flawed. He was the boy mayor of Cleveland and once raided by a panel of nonpartisan historians as one of the worst mayors in U.S. history. Bernie Sanders was a fine mayor of Burlington, and he's been a positive force in the U.S. Senate. Final note. Excuse me for calling him Bernie so often. It's a little disrespectful to Senator Sanders. But I do find the prospect of a President Bernie to be a delightful prospect. Bernies are fading away. This might be our last chance at a Bernie in the White House. Alas, voters might regard Bernies as belonging to the past. Are Ted's? Are Marco's the future? Who knows? Maybe the future belongs to kids who share names with Bernie's grandchildren. Sonny Cole, Riley, Grayson, Ella Tess, and Dylan. In 1941, by the way, when Bernie was born, Bernard, his full name, was the 97th most popular name for boys in America. By 2011, the 97th most popular name was Grayson, the actual name of a Sanders grandchild. Not kidding. Grayson's grandpa says he's running for the next generation. But given Sanders' lack of funds, name recognition, and loyalists within the Democratic Party, it is uncertain that this generation will even pause too much to notice. And that's it for today's show. The two James Madison High School graduates who most remind me of just producer Andrea Salenzi. Well, they would be William Gaines, founding publisher of Mad Magazine, because hers is a madcap life, and the actor William Landau, because hers is also a Mission Impossible. Joel Meyer, managing producer, known for music in Minnesota. To him, we assign Norm Coleman, senator of Minnesota, who we talked about, and Carol King, singer and songwriter, Grammy Award winner for It's Too Late. Andy Bowers, executive producer, he's financially astute, but also tough. James Madison grads, who he reminds me of. Gary Becker won the Nobel Prize in Economics. Also Roy DeMeo, the mobster who headed the DeMeo crew as a member of the Gambino crime family. The gist reminds myself of Maury Allen, sports writer, and famous comedian Chris Rock. Oh wait, Chris Rock didn't graduate. 
You want the famous comedian who did graduate? Fine. Andrew Dice Clay. Thanks for listening. Yo! Hey there, I'm Karina Kolodny. And I'm Noah Michelson. We're the co-hosts of the HuffPost to Love and Sex podcast. Each week, we start with a single question, and then we look to experts, real-life experiences, and listeners like you to find the answers. Questions like, how can unleashing the power of the clitoris revolutionize the world? Or, what is sex really like after 70? In our May 21st episode, we explore open relationships and what you need to know if you're thinking of leaving monogamy behind. So abandon your inhibitions and download and subscribe to the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. 